Tonight on This is Vinyl Tap, prison women, questions about paternity, World War One, and faux zombies loose in Texas. When we're all in a crowd and you catch your eye and then you both smile at the same side and when I'm with her she talks about you In 1948, Columbia Records introduced its 33 and a third RPM long player. The next year, RCA Victor introduced its 45 RPM. Consumers had a choice between buying only the song they liked or 45 minutes of music requiring effort to appreciate. In the mid-60s, rock and roll realized the potential of the longer format. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with just the hits. This is Vinyl Tap is about taking a deep dive into the full album. Another big album tonight. A big album that started out as a very small album in 1968. Some call it a psychedelic album. I think the term Baroque pop is a little better. CBS Records, United States. This is The Zombies, Odyssey and Oracle. Tony, why is this such a great album, and why do you never shut up about it? Well, uh, I, I happen to agree with you that there's not anything particularly psychedelic about this album at all, except for maybe the album cover with its misspelled title. Um, it is one of the most psychedelic album covers in the entire world. Yeah, but what's inside is, in fact, ex exactly as you describe it. It's Baroque pop. Um, I think this album sub subverts anyone's expectation of the 60s. I think that may have been why it was such a hard sell in the 60s, but why it's gained such a huge, well, huge, I guess is a relative term, but such a bigger following later on. It's full of lush harmonies, you know, orchestrations, um, you know, done on a mellotron but still lush orchestrations uh the zombies had kind of a um a special weapon in colin bloodstone there wasn't another pop singer that had that guy's vocal range or his ability and then you throw in uh rod argent and his uh his sort of jazz infused uh keyboard inflections and uh you you know add on to uh underlying influence by the Beach Boys pet sounds and what was going on with the Beatles at the time. And you got some guys standing on the shoulders of giants. And in my opinion, making again, my opinion, the best album of the 1960s. JM, where was this album made? It was made in England, London, England at a very famous studio, Abbey road studio. And then I believe there was a part that was actually recorded in Olympic Studios, also in England, um, and it uses some of the same equipment that Sgt. Pepper's used, and it even used the uh, same engineer, Jeff Emmerich, who was very influential on the Beatles, especially the White Album, and he actually was responsible for a lot of the the sound on this album. I think even the, the Mellotron was left over from the Sgt. Pepper sessions. 
Yeah, it's John Lennon's Mellotron. He left it in the And sky. it was their uh, four-track recorder, wasn't it? The same four-track recorder that they used on Sgt. Pepper, which he just, I can't believe that's only four tracks. The Beatles were were a little bit, I could say, jealous of the way Pet Sounds came out. So they wanted an eight-track, but there wasn't an eight-track anywhere in the UK. So they had the engineers in Abbey Road come up with something. So they figured out a way to use a four-track and add extra tracks to it. I don't know how they did it, but... Um, they figured that out, and the zombies definitely took advantage of that. Do you know they were the only non-EMI artist, or the first, I should say, non-EMI artist to record at Abbey Road? It seems like Pet Sounds has enormous influence on this album. And that makes sense because that was a big deal right before this album came out. But it also seems to me that... Uh, Sergeant Peppers has an influence on this album, even though they probably hadn't even heard it yet. And I'm, I'm wondering if uh, engineers and others in the Abbey Road studios had something to do with that. I, I think likely sure. so. Yeah, like I said, Jeff Emmerich, the, he's the Beatles engineer, and he uh, he's all over this album. So they were opinion. the first band to go into that studio after Abbey Road, which is... Uh, that's very interesting. That's one of those historic deals. It's probably a bigger deal now than it seemed at the time. I think you know, it was after Sergeant Peppers. It wasn't yeah. after. Um, yeah. What did I say? Abbey Road. After Abbey Road. Oh, that's so, I liked Abbey Road better. <laughs> anyway, so Sar- that's another Sar- podcast. Sergeant Pepper <laughs> was released in at the end of May of 1970. I'm sorry, 1967. And the zombies went into the studio on June 1st. So, Abbey, I mean, uh, Sergeant Pepper, I think, was May 26th. So it was it was out, but um, because this out because they got so little money, they only got a thousand pounds to record this album. Because they got so little money, they, they rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. So um, it's not likely in terms of the basic you know foundation of the songs that that album influenced them at all. But I think Jam's right. I think the having the engineers in there and then just when it was released and having the time to take those songs and add a little bit of something here or there. I am pretty sure Sergeant Pepper probably, you know, influenced it. Uh, obviously Pet Sounds. I mean, they talk about how much Pet Sounds influenced them. Um yeah. I think it's better. I think they out out Beach Boys the Beach Boys on it. So, uh to give you some perspective, uh, Pet Sounds cost $70,000 to make, which was the equivalent of 25,000 pounds in 1967. That's exactly or roughly the same thing Sgt. Pepper cost. So both of those albums cost 25 times more than Odyssey and Oracle cost to make. Wow. Here's, something, here's something that I think will really put it into perspective. In 1977, the Ramones went into the studio and spent $6,700 to make an album, which translated to roughly... 1800 pounds and 1968 pounds so that means the ramones debut album cost roughly 800 more pounds than odyssey and oracle cost to make if you do the comparison that way (laughs) there's not a lot of uh fancy engineering in that album no and they and they did it in four months whereas both pet sounds and sergeant pepper were almost a year a year to make it's just incredible to me that the amount. And again, they had a lot of luck. I mean, they had they had the ability to, or they had to force themselves to know the songs and rehearse them. They had all that stuff left over by the Beatles. They had the Beatles engineers in there, so there was a lot of luck involved making that. But they, I mean, they actually took advantage of it. You know, right? Well, before we go any further, I understand one of the reasons you love this album so much is 
you and your wife have a, a tradition of listening to the first song every time she's released from prison. That is, that is amazing. Did I tell you? I didn't know I told anybody that. You're I absolutely you right, Doug. Yeah, she, she, she wrote comes, me a note and told me that. Yeah, she comes, <laughs> Let's she hear, comes what, home. What, what about Care of Self 44, the first track? It's no secret I love this album, so I've read a lot about it. I've read interviews. I've listened to interviews. And, and the, the interesting thing about this song was, you know, Rod Argent got the first, first line out, you know, um, and uh, and then he thought, I need to put a little different spin on this. So for some reason, he thought, I'll make it about a guy waiting for his his girlfriend, wife or whatever to get out of prison and write this letter to her and talk about, you know, there's no judgment in it. It's all just about how great things are yeah. going to be when they come back. Uh, Rod Argent wrote the bass line on this song, and it was influenced by what um, what Brian Wilson was doing with Pet Sounds. He said he always loved the way Brian Wilson would write bass lines that were not really, you know, going with the beat. They were always doing something a little bit extra or a little bit more interesting. And so because of that, he he tried to, this was kind of his first his first real attempt at, uh, at going along. Them. And it is a pretty great bass line in this song. You can kind of tell that he was influenced by Paul McCartney. His he bass being, line, the bass lines. Chris White. Yeah, Chris White definitely was being introduced. Uh, um, seemed to be channeling Paul McCartney on a lot of these songs. Um, the the bass lines aren't plotting, but they're they're definitely pretty intricate. So the interesting thing about this song is it was the first single and it bombed. Yeah, bombed. I mean, people heard this and they didn't. They weren't interested in it. It didn't That's, go anywhere. It's another one of the songs we talked about one last week, where I feel completely incompetent picking a hit single because yeah. to me this sounds like it would be <laughs> a no-brainer hit single yeah and the I, other thing about this song is it makes the name zombies that seems to me to be the most inappropriate name for this <laughs> band they ought to be the sunshine daydreamers or the yeah. picnic by the <laughs> river or something happy even when they're trying to be dark there's still yeah. this happiness in this music and here's this yeah, woman that- coming out of prison <laughs> and it is the happiest thing everybody's sunshine and uh, the name zombies just always seems so inappropriate to me that's funny yeah it's got that that jaunting piano at the very beginning uh, of it that- But, but the lyrics in it are really, I mean, yeah, they're happy, but they're so great. I mean, there's, I forget the line about, um, he's got the room set aside and I think it says the, oh, yeah. the, the, the sun, the room that's warmed by the sunshine every day. It's such, that's yeah. such a great line. Um, yeah. and it's a great, it's a great way to start the album off. It's, it's, uh, you know, we've talked about this in, in, in other episodes. It's like, you're in for a ride. This here, intro, here's the introduction, yep. sit back and enjoy. Yeah, JM, you mentioned it's, it's some just, of the yeah. uh, some of the vocal things. Uh, yeah, it sounds a little bit like the Beach Boys. Some of the things they're doing on this. The thing that makes this album 
uh, kind of like it did with Pet Sounds. It's just the the harmonies are so good, but the, and just the vocal lines themselves. There's so many um, descending lines in their in their singing. At the, and, uh, it's like the voices are instruments. They're not really doing yeah. words. Yeah. Inconsistency. Inconsistency. Warning, Will Robinson. We have an inconsistency. <laughs> I may break for just a moment. I have the transcript from the Everyman. I hate the Eagles' harmony. I hate it when they're doing wordplay with their mouths, making noises. Ooh, 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 ooh. That was from J.M. Rowe. Yes, it's the transcript. I because <laughs> Eagles exact words. Yeah, the Eagles do it bad, and they do it because they can't think of anything else to do. And to I would love to hear the Beach Boys cover this song too. I think that would be fun. I don't need yep. that. I know the, <laughs> the zombies are the best thing in the whole world. <laughs> um, <laughs> next, we go to a William, William Faulkner short story. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Rose for Emily. Come and go to give each other roses from her tree, but not a rose for Emily. Emily. The vocals, the vocals got those nice descending lines, kind of like almost like bell tones, doing these kind of like bell tones things over the lead vocals. Um, it's a very sparse song, you know. If you listen to it, there's really, there's just mainly vocals. Well, again, it's 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 difficult not to do that when you get Colin Bloodstone. I know he doesn't sing lead on everything, but you know yeah. that guy's voice is is it amazing. is an incredible voice, and it's it is so clear. Does this remind either one of you of uh, "She's Leaving"? Oh, I, I never thought about that. Yeah, a little bit. It's it's definitely got that kind of melancholy huh. feel to it. I mean, it's. Obviously, the difference is it's uh, the the Beatles song is told from the point of view of the parents, whereas this is kind of a, a, a third um, person, observer. a third person observer. Yeah, the subject matter of the reminds me of Eleanor Rigby a little bit. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely yeah. got that. The next one is the first one on the uh, album not written by Argent. Maybe after he's gone. Maybe after. There's some debate as to where this one was recorded, whether it was Abbey Road or Olympic. Um, I, I heard an interview where Rod Argent was talking about the songs that they did in Olympic and how they have a different feel to them than the Abbey Road songs. And this definitely has a has a, a bit of a different kind of feel. To, I mean, it fits the album, obviously. You know, it's again one of those lush kind of vocal uh arrangements um there's a lot going on there but at the same time it's sparse boy that sounded pretentious chris white said that because they were so limited on time and budget they had three hours to cut these tracks and so this wow. is one of the ones he references and says yeah we had three hours we were we had to get this done quickly it may be my favorite song on the on the album uh, it's, the, it's another one that helps back up my point that the zombies is the wrong name because he's trying <laughs> to be it's, it's part of it's sad this girl loves somebody else. Right. And then it burst into something like Saturday morning car uh, commercial for uh, <laughs> cereal. But after he's gone, yeah, it, uh, it gets happy. It can't stay dark too long. Yeah. And uh, yeah. this is 
this is uh, one of many Chris White songs on this album, and that guy wrote a lot of songs, and all his didn't become hits. It's it's so it it's is brutal. We're, yeah, <laughs> I mean the next one, a case in point. Yeah, uh, the next one. Let's go on. That's a uh, Beachwood Park. And I can't forget you. Won't forget you. Won't forget those days. Beachwood Park was a girls' primary school, and it was in a, I think, an old, old mansion, uh, Beachwood Park. And Chris White lived around there. His dad had a shop in the neighborhood or in the in the village, and so he learned to drive around there. And he and he's reminiscing about that in this song, looking out at the stars and all this stuff. Also recorded at Olympic Studio. Here's what's interesting about this: this is one of two two songs that has the Hammond organ on it. The other one yeah. being being time of the season. And at the time this came out, Procol Harum was huge in the UK. Wider Shade of Pale was like the song. With and, one of the most famous uh, organ intros yeah, ha- of all time. Absolutely. Yeah. And so so Rod Argent said to, to Chris White, he wanted to put that feel into the song. He didn't want to rip off Procol Harum's song, but he wanted to feel it feel that way. And uh, and it, if you look at listen to it with that in mind, you can kind of see that 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 tone, that feeling that this song has. Yeah. It sounds sounds like that. When this song came out, the the town and the people who ran the school were absolutely appalled and offended by this because oh, really? a British pri- yeah British primary school goes up to eight years old. So the fact <laughs> that there's a love song about Beechwood Park. Uh, people thought that was a little uh, a little much. This is really where I think the first song where Paul Atkinson's guitar playing just really kind of takes center stage. I really like the guitar part on this. We're not going to be talking about him very much, but uh, nope this this album is one of the least uh, guitar albums of any I've ever heard, and uh, that's probably all we're going to say about. Atkinson, uh, except I did have dinner with him one time, uh, and he was the head of A&R at MCA Records, and it was it was fun. He was a really nice guy, and uh, all I can remember from the mill is he kept saying, oh, we found out we were huge in the Philippines. Who knew? <laughs> Evidently, the right before this album was recorded, the Beatles were supposed to do a, a fairly long residency in the Philippines, and they backed out of it. And for some reason, someone decided to get the zombies to do it. The zombies went not knowing a whole lot about it. You know, again, the music industry being not the, the best in the 60s. Um, and they went and they were played five nights or something like that and made no money whatsoever. But, yeah, they were huge, huge in the Philippines. I mean, <laughs> you can't forget these guys had these guys had top 10 hits and number one singles before this album came out. Right. And I think the reason why you don't talk much about about the guitarist is when you've got someone like Rod Argent who's kind of taken center stage anyway, it's a little yeah. difficult. There's not a whole lot of room, especially at you know when when rock at this point in its infancy, I guess. That's followed up by Breathe Candles. Breathe candles in the mind, bright and tiny gems of memory. Another white composition. Also based yeah. on a short story. An Aldous Huxley short story. Really? Um, really? Yeah, about people sitting in a people sitting in a pub 
you know, feeling sorry for themselves. Um, the interesting thing about this song is, and I never knew this until recently, all, um, Argent, White, and Blundstone take uh, take different verses of this song. So it's like three different characters. So uh, Argent sings the first verse, Chris White sings the second, and Blundstone sings the third. You know, and that add, that adds kind of a little depth to it. I don't know why I never knew that. It's obvious when, especially Chris White's voice, when you hear him sing, it's like, oh, that's not either of the other two guys. Hung up on the dream inside one. I feel like this is the first song that feels slightly dated and I don't mean that badly. It's just, there's not a whole lot on this album to me that feels like it fell out of the sixties. And this is kind of the first song that feels that way to me. All right. Well, that ends side one side two kicks off with uh, track seven, not with track six, but with track seven and changes. I like this song. I'd nominate this as the number one song that needs to have the bongo drums removed from it. I knew her when summer was her crown And autumn said how brown her eyes <laughs> Actually, yeah, like the why did they do that with the bongos? I, I don't know. They're, I think they were trying to give... Uh, Hugh Grundy something to do I'm, I'm assuming he <laughs> um, well you know how you said earlier we wouldn't be talking about Paul Atkinson again uh, what's interesting about this song is all five of the zombies sing on it including Hugh Grundy and Paul Atkinson and and the reason why is because of that weird whatever four tracky thing that the engineers did at Abbey Road it left a couple of bonus tracks and so um, here's something kind of interesting I, I heard an interview with chris white where he said they came they were coming up to the end of their recording time while they were doing the song and so some studio guys came in and just started moving a piano and he said uh evidently you can hear it i i, I listened to that song at least four times after i heard that interview and i can't hear anyone moving a piano but um it's kind of kind of a funny story that uh leads into a, another argent song i want her she wants me and life seems kind of yeah, this one is, I think, a great example of Chris White's uh, bass play, and he, he seems to really have been influenced by Paul McCartney on this one. It even starts off with a kind of a fuzz echo bass doing that uh little galloping thing at the beginning yeah this was another song that was supposedly recorded at olympic studios um but what's interesting about that i mean argent swears that's the case but then in another interview he says that he used a harpsichord left behind by the beatles so i don't know unless they added yeah. that post post recording it at olympic i don't know how that could be the case Guy i'm glad you brought that up about the harpsichord uh i think harpsichord works with all of these kinds of yeah. songs uh you know yeah. i think about van morrison on uh using that harpsichord it's the first harpsichord blues song ever written uh cypress <laughs> avenue on uh, and it really yeah. works and it, it reminded me of that this album has a bunch of that and it really works well then we have a really happy song and i think <laughs> didn't they try to make this a uh, single no this will be our year 
No, but it should have been. This is maybe my favorite song on the album. Again, distinguishing between the best and favorite. I, this song just makes me so happy every time yeah. I hear it. I never get sick of hearing it. Uh, my kids get sick of me dancing around the house singing it, but uh, <laughs> I, I just lo- I love, love, love this song. More than the it's one great for song. your wife getting out of prison? Yeah, you know, that one's got some sentimental value to it, but this one, you know, this kind of lends itself. When she gets out, I always say, this will be our year, and then she goes right back in. So you know. <laughs> so the, the the piano part on this is is almost simplistic. It reminds me of She's a Rainbow. That underlines one of the things I like the most about this album is no one's showing off. Yeah. Yet. 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 <laughs> we, we have yet to. There's a song where there's a little bit of showing off, but we'll get to that later. Well, but. and then this is my least favorite song on the album. And it's because uh, I don't think it's such a bad song, but I hate preachy anti-war songs. This it reminds you know Jamin always joke about uh, Bob Dylan freewheeling with the Masters of War. Have you have this almost perfect album, and then here comes the preachers, the Masters of War. Yeah. Like like there's the pro war people that need to be convinced by artists that war is bad. Um, couple of things one is uh i don't know if you knew this but this was actually a single and it bombed as well <laughs> well they thought, uh, they thought hey all those hippies in the united states hate war they'll like this the reason why i think this song works and why i don't hate it because i'm with you about the preachy stuff is it's told from the point of view of someone actually in battle kind of witnessing what they're saying it's not some hippie talking about being you know not being a fortunate son or whatever no, it's, it's about that it's a hippie pretending that he was in war <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I I think I think it's great. Uh, Chris White wrote it on a pump organ. He had a pump organ in his room, and that's why yeah, you that's, know you got that weird. That's what kind I was gonna of, say. Yeah, that the it sounds like you can actually hear the pedals being pumped on that pump organ, and it, it, I think it lends it that kind of yeah nineteen fourteen quality sound to it. And then it's got that weird ass uh, synthesizer. I don't. Yeah. Some, some of the younger sound. people in the audience will not realize we were not alive during the Great War. Um, <laughs> so, JM's not talking from actual experience. Well, this reminds <laughs> me a little bit of MASH, how they used the Korean War to attack the Vietnam War. Oh, that's funny. They just went um, a little further back. I don't know if this would will change your mind about it, but the reason he wrote about this was he had an uncle or an uncle or uh, someone related to him that died in the battle. The song was about and his mother telling him, but I think he enlisted when he was 16, which was wow. an uncommon in World War One. Right. A lot of people did that. And I think it hit him so much that he wrote the song. I don't think he was intending this to be some sort of anti-Vietnam song. I think the record company thought it was. I do, too. And glommed onto it. Um, it, The other thing is when Jam mentioned 1914, that was the the battle he's talking about took place in 1916. The record company added that 
date on it and got it wrong and it shows you the kind of push or pull that the zombies had they couldn't get it changed <laughs> yeah they couldn't get their uh, odyssey spelled right either well yeah and they used to say they used to say that was on purpose but i think that's a that's i think a, they came clean eventually didn't argent come clean about 50 yeah. years later or something yeah. yeah 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 now the sad thing is i didn't notice it was spelled wrong i had to read that <laughs> yeah, well you know oops. the sad thing i've been spelling it wrong for so many years because of that album. <laughs> uh, Odyssey. Friends of mine is the next song. This is a topic I don't think anyone has ever covered in song before. <laughs> yeah. uh, All right, that's another one where i think the guitar player shines it, it's got that cool cool 12 string guitar solo in it and it's got that descending piano part after it i just i think this one of my favorite parts of the album that's that's funny because i think this is another one of those songs that feels like the 60s just came up yeah. and smacked it around it feels very dated to me again not a bad thing on this song or the last one i mentioned but uh it, it was it was the funny thing is chris Wright. this is a chris white song too i believe and he, he wrote it at a much slower pace than this. And Argent came in and said, this needs to be faster. And then they really? said, oh, we, we need some sort of call calling in the background. So why don't we just name all of our friends that we know that are couples? And so they started just <laughs> naming, you know, Bill and Mary, you know, doing all this stuff. Yeah. And then and then later on in an interview that I heard, I don't know, maybe from five years ago, they said, yeah, all those people are either divorced or dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it does have kind of a Brady Bunch silver platters kind of. Yeah. Thing. I thought that too, Jim. I thought exactly the same Brady Bunch deal. Um, you know, nobody else has written a song about their friends being in love. That's yeah. just such a weird deal. Well, there's a lot of weird deals on this song. I mean, how many pop bands from the 60s were writing about, you know, women in prison coming home and World War One? Yeah. And I mean, it's just it's kind of it's kind of all over the place, but it works. Yeah, it works. Yeah. I won't argue with that. Okay, so next is the monster hit. Now, I'll tell you something real quick. I was When we decided to do this album, I was a little worried because I know a lot of people don't know about this album. Um, but that's our mission, to help people understand what they should be listening to. So for about two weeks, I went around asking everybody, do you know who the zombies are? They'd say yes. And I said, can you tell me one of their songs? They would say no. And then I would say, do you know what's your name? <laughs> Who's your daddy? And everybody knows that. So it's one of the most recognizable of Zombies uh, songs. Maybe this and uh, their other big hit. Um, She's, not, She's there. not there. Yeah, Probably are the ones that everybody knows, even though they don't know it's the Zombies. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, Tony doesn't like this one. Yeah, I agree with Colin Blundstone when he was recording this. This is not this is my least favorite song on this album. I think it sounds it sounds the most 60s like the 60s came up and vomited all over it. You say people aren't showing off on this album. Rod Argent can't help himself but noodle around and and, yeah. and essentially say, wait, wait, because Argent's on its way. There's a part of this song that gives me the heebie-jeebies 
Well, there's two parts. The whole idea that you call the person you're dating daddy, I, I'm not <laughs> comfortable with that. But the other part is when I hear that uh, organ going, I yeah. start getting scared that the doors are about to come. <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel your pain because that yeah, that's exactly it, it's not it's not good. You know, I often though we've talked about this before whether or not um, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Like, do I not like this song because I've just heard it so many damn times that yeah. I just it just is it just grates on me, or do I not like it because I honestly believe it it's it stands out like a sore thumb on this album. It doesn't sound like anything else, you know. And right. I think Colin I think Colin Blundstone knew that. I don't think he knew it would be a huge hit for them, but I think well, obviously he didn't. But I think he knew this didn't fit. You know, they had a big argument in the studio about uh, yes. Colin Bloodstone wasn't singing right or something, and Rod Argent was like, yeah. come on. Yeah. And he yeah, said... I think it helped lead to the demise of the band. It, yeah, and evidently it, he said, you said, you come and sing this to Argent, mm -hmm. and Argent's like, no, do it. And then and then finally Colin Bloodstone said, okay, I'll do it. And then they go straight into, it's time for the season of loving, after this huge, giant fight they just had in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, they... It you can tell they're a great band even when they're doing this song. By the time you get our age, classic rock radio has made you listen to the same eight hundred songs so many times you can't stand any of them. Yeah, anymore. You're right. This does not fit on the album at all. It's nothing like the rest of the songs, and it is a song that got the album the recognition it needed in the United States. This is an album that made it in the U.S. before it made it in England. And Al Cooper is the guy that used his influence to shove this down everybody's throat. He wrote the uh, he wrote the liner notes on the album cover. Al Cooper's in a, a lot of people might not know who he is, but he's got his finger in everything. He played the organ on Like a Rolling Stone. He played yep. the French horn on Can't Always Get What You Want. He played every instrument on every other song that you ever heard. And he has, uh, what did he do? He produced uh, Leonard Skinner's first three albums. Yeah, he put Blood, Set, and Pierce together. I mean, the guy's got a remarkable uh, career, and that he's the great. one yeah. that got the zombies the recognition they deserved in the United States. It was weird. They uh, So they re-released, this was the second single uh, before Butcher's Tale, and, uh, and then they re-released it on whatever American label they were on. It was some subsidiary of Columbia or CBS or something, I think. Yeah, some obscure label. But uh, yeah, he went into Clive Davis's office and said, you got to give these guys another chance. So they re-released it. And then of all places, it started getting airplane Boise, Idaho. Yeah, um, one DJ was playing that song over and over again. Yeah. And then and then what happened, which is typical of a lot of things that happened, uh, the way it happened back then, is someone glommed, like it was a regional hit. And then other other markets started glomming onto it, and then it ended up being a number three hit on Billboard and a number one Cashbox hit, and the band had broken up. Two this happened two years after the band had broken up. And yeah, Tony, yeah. that brings us to my favorite part of this whole deal. What if you're a promoter <laughs> and there's a band out there with the hit <laughs> album, hit single, and you want to uh, take advantage of that? There's, you do something that's a little unethical, but damn interesting. Tell us about the Texas Zombies. Yeah, so the Zombies had broken up by the time time of the season became a hit. And I think someone actually tried to talk them into getting back together. But by that time, Chris White and Rod Argent had started working on Argent. 
And uh, Colin Bloodstone, who was not one of the writers, so the non-writers of the band got stiffed a lot. They didn't get much money. He was working in the insurance industry. None of them were interested in getting the zombies back together. So as you so put it, a a promoter, I would say disreputable promoter, uh, decided to make a little dough off of a charting single with no band and got some guys together from Texas um, and called them the zombies. And, uh, you know, let's remember, this is the 60s, you know, nobody necessarily knew what these guys looked like um, when they would tour. He got him. He sent them out on the road to make money that way. They weren't recording they were, they were touring, making money as the zombies, you know, coming through the through your town. And, and you know, also being the 60s, news didn't travel the way it does now. So the zombies really at, at the point this was happening, they found out later, but they didn't know this was going on. Two of the guys in the band were Frank Beard and Dusty Hill of... Easy. <laughs> <laughs> Hard not to think these guys didn't know there was something weird going on because they both, both Frank Beard and Dusty uh, Dusty Hill, use pseudonyms. Um, there's this fantastic picture online of the a band. They're called the original quote zombies end quote, and uh, uh, Dusty Hill and Frank Beard are wearing you know those 1960 what what was went for now ni- you know 1960s hippie cowboy hats, the kind of stuff Stephen Stills used to wear in Buffalo Springfield. They got one of those types of hats on, uh, you know, and there were four of them. There's five guys in the zombies, um, but it's a great picture. Um, there's a really good article online that we'll post on our Facebook page. That's uh, a, I think it's a Buzzfeed article or something talking about it. So Chris White finally got wind of this in, in, I don't know, sometime around 1969, I guess, right when, you know, they were, they'd been touring for a while. And uh, there was an, actually an article in Rolling Stone in December of 69 in Rolling Stone with the title, The Zombies Are a Stiff. And they interviewed Chris White, and, he, and he's you know really laying into these fake guys, saying that they're dragging the name, their reputation around, and really taking money from the fans. And it, he mentions that evidently they actually went to the label, to the Zombies label, and asked for $1,000 in publicity money thinking they could get it. So I found a 1969 Saginaw News review of a concert. It says this. It says the the, the this is of the of the Texas Zombies. It says the band was especially disappointing, and the crowd began to leave during the fourth tune. The band didn't sound like they did back when they were selling millions of records, likely due to what appeared to be a complete transition of band members. When their when their forty minute set was finally finished, there was no applause, nothing but dead silence. Yeah, and to put a cap on that, it wasn't unfortunately the last time that happened to him. Sometime in the late '80s, another they had let their name lapse. I guess they, could, I don't know. I guess you can copyright or trademark a name. And another band started going around touring as the Zombies, and they had a guitarist named Ronald Hugh Grundy claiming that the drummer had switched <laughs> instruments. Is <laughs> the rumor that the zombies will be going on tour next year as ZZ Top true? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that because Colin Blundstone made a joke about that, or maybe Rod Argent did. It's the guys, you know, nowadays looking back don't have any ill feelings about it. They actually think it, uh, Colin Blundstone said if it helped them get us to get their start and become what they became, I don't have any problems with it. Let's come closer to modern times. Do you have something for the kids tonight? Yeah, I, I wanted to do something that was kind of in a similar spirit. I mean, there's nothing, in my opinion, that comes close to this this album, really, save for maybe an album by a band called Jellyfish. I'm not going to talk about them, but I am going to talk about one of the guys in the band, Roger Manning Jr. 
he uh, put out a couple of solo albums in the uh, mid to late 2000, the the early, you know, the 2000s, not the teens. And uh, one of them was recently re- released this year, or maybe both of them were, but his debut solo album, was, which is called The Land of Pure Imagination, is really, really great. Um, he was the keyboardist for Jellyfish, so it's got a lot of nice piano work on it, really intricate harmonies. Um, you know, it has the same sort of Baroque feel that this does. I mean, this guy is definitely a fan of the Beach Boys, definitely a fan of the Beatles, definitely a fan of the zombies. And he channels all of that in, in these, in this album. Um, you know, it's, it's great. It's even got a couple of slices of power pop. There's a song called the loser on it. That's really great. She says, dear, you must be joking. Sandman is probably the most sort of vocally reminiscent of stuff on this on this album but Really, really worth checking it out. It was re-released on vinyl this year. I think you can probably get it on CD as well. Land of Pure Imagination by Roger Manning Jr. All right. Well, that's it for tonight's show. Next week, it's an album war. Sunbolt's Trace battling against Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Once leaders of these respective bands were like brothers, producing some of the most original music to come out of the Midwest ever. But now... They are mortal enemies. Be sure and look us up on Spotify or your favorite podcast platform, such as iHeartRadio or even Amazon. And please leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Look us up on Facebook or Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. Or you can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. And if we use one of your selections on the air and you're the first one, We'll send you your very own Odyssey and Oracle mask. For our host, Doug Cooper, and our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe, this is Vinyl Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy?